welcome to the Bold Love Podcast with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr. Here we highlight the uncommon journeys of bridge builders and peacemakers that are living out their faith in the public square by boldly loving their neighbor and working together to build resilient communities. Our goal here on the podcast is to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, to learn how to better love your neighbor, and learn how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. My name is Josh Tate, and here, if you're new on the Bold Love Podcast, we are looking to explore paths and have candid discussions on what it looks like to better love your neighbor or even your enemies. We hope to model civil conversations to show how to better relate to others, how to build relationships with those that are different than you or believe things different than you without compromising what you believe. So we have a large variety of people that come on this podcast, including Christians and Muslims and other faith and society leaders. It's also a storytelling podcast on the lives of bridge builders that are making a difference in the world and modeling loving your neighbor. So thank you so much for joining us today and make sure to check out season one and episodes from season two as well from the past because there are great conversations that are had there. But today, our guest is Pastor Dwight McKissick. He is a prominent African-American Baptist pastor and founder and senior pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Arlington, Texas. McKissick's vision is to develop multi-ethnic, multicultural churches and ministries and help mentor church planters. He's also the author of several books, including Beyond Roots in Search of Blacks in the Bible, and moving from fear to faith. So we will dive into some hot topics with Pastor McKissick on his recent take on the Southern Baptist Convention, racism in the nation and the church, and discuss solutions on what feels like to be just a very polarized world and denomination and the troubles that we're having in our nation right now. So for more information on Pastor McKissick, including show notes and links, please go to bobrobertsjr.com. That's bobrobertsjr.com, and you can get that information there. So now I want to welcome in the host of the Bold Love Podcast, Pastor Bob Roberts Jr., as he interviews his friend, Pastor Dwight McKissick. Here you go. I'm excited about this podcast. I'm with uh, a guy that I have known since I was 22 years of age, the Dwight McKissick. Now, I don't know if y'all know what race I am or not, but I'm white. And on this podcast, and I don't know if you know what race Dwight is, but he's African-American. Or is it reversed? Maybe I'm African-American and Dwight's Anglo. I don't know. (laughs) I'm teasing you. But we have known one another a long time. And I love this man. Uh, I first met Dwight when uh, he came as a seminary student about the same time I did. But I got a job before him. And I was basically a janitor. I'd go in and clean out apartments when people moved out. And Sarah Bentley. Uh, is the lady who was in charge of housing, and I worked for her. And so Dwight showed up at the apartment and uh, showing it to him, and I was excited he was becoming a student. And his wife needed a job because she was a school teacher. My wife was teaching in the Arlington Independent School District, and so my wife was close friends with Tilly Bergen. Isn't it funny how people move in different spots? And so Nikki uh, connected Vera with Tilly and uh, worked at the uh, Arlington ISD, so I love Dwight. Dwight and I started our churches the same time. 
Uh, Tate Springs helped Dwight start with uh, Charles Clary uh, back in the 80s. Northridge Hills Baptist Church with Phil Simmons helped me start. So we just kind of watched one another at times from a distance, uh, challenged one another, encouraged one another, and I love him. I've been to his church, and I love his preaching, like everything about it. So we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. We'll probably talk about race a fair amount, but uh, we, we just we just want to talk about it. I just I don't know about you, Dwight, but I just love black people. You like white people? Bob, I love God's people. I don't really believe you can be authentically born again without having a genuine love for all people and people of other races. But uh, I got pushback on that once. It may be true. Peter struggled with loving and accepting uh, Gentiles, although he was born again and filled with the spirit. But it took a special measure of God's grace on his life to ultimately embrace the Gentiles. And I think a lot of us are at that position where it's going to take a special measure of God's grace uh, to love across racial lines. But thank God you and I have never had that that problem. And um, But I see I, I, the condition of the world today suggests that is a huge problem. And maybe we're like the man Jesus had to touch the second time because the first time he saw men as trees. And he needed another touch. So some of us, oh, white and black, good. Native American and Asian Hispanic, we're, some of us are born again. We, we, if we die, we go to heaven. And we experience a measure of the kingdom of God here on earth. But it appears for us to just love each other unconditionally across racial lines and not, be, not prejudge others or treat each other unfairly solely on the basis of of race, it, it's we need another touch from God. Maybe this last day's outpouring of revival. The Bible talks about it in Acts two seventeen. In the last days, I pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's really race: Africans, yeah. Asians, Anglo's, Native Americans. Um, he said he poured out his spirit, and I believe when that ha- when that happens, as on the day of Pentecost, every nation under the sun was gathered. People of very complexion, people of very geographic background, origin, and and God just soaked them. Oh God, do it again. This Amen. nation need the churches need it. And if that happens, Bob, I think it, it will do wonders in terms of improving race relations and maybe changing the dynamics and cultures of our churches. I think it's the one thing that's prevented another great awakening in America. It's one thing to be raised around racism where you don't recognize it, know any better, but when it's been challenged in a public manner as much as it has since the uh, civil rights movements of the 60s, to ignore it is to ignore uh, the issue of justice and the call of Jesus to love all people. And, and I think I think there will not be a revival in America uh, without love. In the past, we had a, a measure of revival. We had some awakenings, but, but they were incomplete. I, I'm intrigued. I don't know if you know this or not, but I did this, some just study on my own. I got curious. You know, Jonathan Edwards uh, had yeah. slaves, Absolutely. Uh, and it, which broke my heart. I never knew that, uh, but I guess I didn't read that carefully when I was reading the biographies, but it bothered me. How could a man who led in the Great Awakenings, I respected, and I, how could that be? But, you know, I, I, 
his son, here's what's crazy. His son grew up in the home knowing uh, that something was not right about it. He was 12 when his dad died, and he became one of the first abolitionists. Jonathan wow. Edwards Jr. Most people don't know that. I didn't. Started a whole movement of that. You know, I grew up in deep East Texas. And if you were to ask me, Bob, were you racist or prejudiced? I would have said, no, other people are, but not me. What I didn't understand was a lot of my views were racist and prejudiced. I inherited them. I absorbed them. It's not like somebody spoon fed me and said, okay, Bob, let's be racist. Let's be prejudiced. But I just accepted it. I, I remember uh, when my dad pastored First Baptist Lindell, Texas, the best mechanic in Lindell was a guy named Elton Freeman. And hmm. frankly, he, he looked like Morgan Freeman. And he was okay. African-American. And so my dad was a phenomenal expositor. Well, Elton Freeman wanted to come hear my dad because my dad could exposit the scriptures. We sat in the back of the church. And I remember one time I said, Brother Freeman, he worked on my car. I mean, he was a mechanic yeah. and an intellectual man. And mm -hmm. so I remember saying, you want to come up here and sit with me? He said, no, no, Bob, I'd better not do that. I said, no, it's okay. Well, he understood it wasn't okay, but I didn't. But it became, well, okay, that's just the way that it is. And, and it wasn't right. I remember, Dwight, I was preaching when I was a, a young teenager. And so my sister would drive me where I had to preach. And so I preached at a little Methodist church on Sunday morning. I got through and for fun, some of the football players and I had come to hear me preach where I was. And so we went in Lindell, Texas, to St. Mary's Baptist Church. I'd never been to a black church. That's where all the guys, that's where all the guys who played football went to church. Okay. So I go into that church, and, I mean, man, the worship was incredible. I mean, it, I'd never experienced anything like that in my life. So the pastor literally had me and all those white kids, there are probably two rows of us, moved us down to the front. He starts his sermon by going, I knew this would happen one day. God is bringing us all together. I didn't know what he meant. I just mm. went to go to church. I did not understand the seriousness of the racial challenge. And later when, you know, I told my dad and others, I said, son, you got to be careful with all that. You're going to stir something up. Think about it. Just go into church. You're going to stir something up. And so I, there's a lot of things that, I was raised around. I would never have thought of myself as racist, but here's what happened that shifted me. The first two people I ever led to the Lord was in the fifth grade, hmm. and it was two African-American young boys in my classroom. And so I got them Bibles and invited them to church, but I was told they're not going to want to come to our church, Bob. They have their own churches they go to. Hmm. I just accepted that. I didn't question it. I said, oh, okay. Well, if they'd rather go. Th there was a missed opportunity there. That, that, that impacted me. And uh, as I got older and I began to realize what was inside of, of the culture and how it affected me, oh, man, Dwight, I had to change. What, what is this all about? I mean, how did we get in this mess? You, you, you reflected on your background and childhood and a lot of points I could um, relate uh, with you and some similar parallels. Uh, you were the 
white boy walking into a predominantly African-American church, but I've been the um, African-American in an African-American church, and those rare occasions when a white person or persons came in, you could feel it in the atmosphere, and it wasn't uh, the feeling of resentment, bitterness, uh, hatred. It was that, hey, somebody's, we got a guest in the house. And not just a guest, white guest. That broke all kind of social mores and norm because uh, I'm a few years old. I was born in 56. So when you talk about 62, 64, 65, Jim Crow and segregation, uh, voting rights was not uh, enacted until 1965. So I'm observing this as a four-year-old kid, eight, 12-year-old kid, uh, when everything was separate. Uh, water fountains had colored a Negro and white over them. Doctor's office had a, a black section and a white section. We had a segregated library, segregated schools. If we went to a, sing a movie, we had to sit up in a balcony and while white people sat on, uh, down in the larger pew section and so I'm, I'm observing what you're talking about uh, all of my life. But uh, there were certain people in the church who resented it when white people came. The pastors would always put on their best uh, presentations and uh, recognize them, bring them down to the front, treat them as royalty, uh, honor them in certain ways. Uh, some of us in the church thought, Hey, that's okay. Uh, we got guests, I guess, special guests. Uh, but others thought uh, white guests should have been treated like any other black guests, just whatever the norms were. And that has always been a healthy discussion behind the scenes in that era because my dad was a pastor, so I can relate to a lot of it. But both our fathers were pastors. Uh, how do you respond uh, if white people show up at your uh, church. So he said, how do we get in this mess? Well, you know, as well as I do, uh, America was birthed on the notion uh, that this country would be a land of, uh, in the uh, Constitution, I think it was Thomas Jefferson, all men are created equal, but he really meant all white men are created equal, because at the time he wrote that, uh, Blacks were enslaved. That, 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 that phrase never had in mind the Native American and African Americans. So it was not uh, uh, purchased land per se. Uh, it was, this land was taken from Native Americans through deception and uh, some violence and, you know, bottles of whiskey and uh, certain trinkets and uh, to allow space and only later on for that space to be taken by force. So we got this way because that was uh, a mixture of quote unquote Christianity with a pursuit of politics and power and economic prowess and development. Uh, this country was built off a of, of, of Christian nationalism paradigm. If you really think about it, yeah. It was built off of a Christian nationalism paradigm, which, by the way, is not dead yet. No, it's not. So uh, the kingdom of God being invades where people are authentically born again and people who read the Bible and 
interpret it and apply it without uh, the shackles of tradition or racism or prejudice on both sides, economic exploitation. And so you have this tension and conflict even today for those who make a distinction between the kingdom of God and how it's uh, processed through the faith versus cultural Christianity that, as you said, that says, okay, blacks go to church over there, we go over here, and at an at at age of 12, you don't challenge them and say, well, they prefer being over to our churches. Well, that's a diplomatic way of saying it's somewhat of a deceptive way of saying we don't want them here, but it's rather it's right. better to say they prefer to be over there. You don't know that. You didn't ask. That's right. And even if I did prefer being over there, give me that option. Tell me I'm welcome at your place. Invite me to your Sunday school. Invite me to your choir. Invite me to your uh, discipleship training sessions. And let me decide if I don't want to be in your church. Don't you make that decision for me. I've been, bo- I've been bothered by the fact, Dwight, that the government, business, educational institutions have been way ahead in dealing with racial issues, way ahead of the church. I've always believed that the church had the responsibility to lead the way instead of to bring up the rear. And it's as if our secular uh, institutions are dragging our Christian churches, kicking and screaming behind them. I'm, I'm heartbroken about this. I would have thought by now we wouldn't have these issues. Uh, we'd have them maybe, but not like this. H- how do you see the state of where we are right now in America today on, on racial issues? Oh, I, I, I agree with you 100% that uh, secular society is by far moving toward uh, empowerment in ways that our churches are, are more interested in preserving the culture in the past than we are moving forward. I read Matthew 13, 47 this morning, parable of the drag that prayer. And I may be totally misunderstanding this parable, but uh, Jesus in preaching about the kingdom and he let them know there's going to be every kind in the net. You know, everything God made comes in diversity. Uh, birds, flowers, uh, even horses. <laughs> yeah, but zebras, uh, people uh, come in various colors. Every, there's a lot of diversity built in in nature, and so it is with the uh, people of God, the kingdom of God. He said, every kind going to be in that net. He said, I'll do the separate. When it comes time to for segregation and separation, it won't be based on skin color a culture. It'd, it'd be uh, based on relationship to God and accepting the kingdom of God. And uh, But the church uh, has is, is far behind. Let me tell you why that was so graphically uh, illustrated in, in reality, historically. And when I wanted to attend the inaugural in Washington, D.C. Uh, room, I thought I'd get from a a mutual friend of ours, he told me I couldn't have not only that room, but that house, because he said Bob Roberts would be staying there. I said, Bob <laughs> Roberts, the Bob Roberts I know? Yeah, he'll, he'll be staying there. So 
you know, another time you could stay there, but I'm thinking, really, you're going to dislodge? <laughs> well, not only a, a white man, but a white man I know. <laughs> and uh, but Vera and I ended up being in D.C. that week, and uh, we did. John Dickens came to have uh, dinner. Somebody took us out for dinner or something. But uh, we actually stayed at a hotel downtown. Uh, we stayed at a hotel that was reserved for Republicans when they thought they would win the election. And I tended to vote more Republican at the time. And uh, But the Republicans lost the election, so they had that's the only hotel we could get into. And we stayed there. And uh, the day we were leaving, here's what I noticed, Bob. Blacks, whites, Asian, Hispanics, the interracial harmony and celebration and positivity surrounding the uh, celebrations of Barack Obama's election were amazing to me. And the Lord showed it to me what what the church should look like. And I thought, how could this kind of unity I have a brother-in-law that's a, a Republican. He often goes to the Republican National Convention. He's black. And uh, so one of my kids said, a friend says, Man, all, you look at the Republican Convention, nobody's there that's black. They're, they're all white. And even at the Republican Convention, it, it, it's largely Anglo. But when I saw that interracial harmony that day on the heels of the Obama celebration, the Lord reminded me, this is what the church ought to look like. This is what the Southern yeah. Baptist Convention ought to look like. Quite frankly, it ought to be what the National Baptist yeah. uh, Convention looks like. But to find more racial harmony and inclusion in the church. And my wife and I needed a ride to the airport. A lady who did know us, she, she was a white lady. She had a big old limousine with extra seats. Uh, she, I guess she maybe overheard our conversations trying to see how we get to the airport. But she offered us a ride in her limousine, a rich, wealthy white lady, not knowing us from Adam. We jump in the back of her limousine, go to the airport, solely on the basis that she was celebrating Barack Obama's election. Quite frankly, uh, I got a lot of respect for him. I didn't vote for him that year, but I did go to celebrate the historic occasion. She didn't ask me who I voted for. She just offered me a ride and my wife in the limousine. And here we experience love, peace, and harmony across racial lines in the name of a, uh, a historic election. And we got King Jesus. That's right. Who's greater than Obama. But yet we don't find the interracial unity in the vast majority no. of our churches and our conventions. You know, Dwight, uh, I did go to that inauguration with my son. That's the only inauguration I've ever been to. And I wanted to go to that one because that's been the most historic inauguration and probably one of the most historic American events of this century and, and of American history. Absolutely. And so I, I wanted to be there. And what you're talking about, the racial harmony, you're right. He was all over D.C. I remember the for the first year or so after he was president, I mean, people would go out of their way to speak to one another at different races. It was a celebration, not just for the Democrats, but frankly, for Republicans and, and everyone. And I think, honestly, uh, there's some things I definitely disagreed with President Obama on, but I think a lot of times the, the, the criticism got confused with fear 
of one another. Can yes. you imagine what it would be like if the church were leading that parade? I mean, wow. For, forget what the government does. There's enough Southern Baptist in America that if they were to deal with their racial issues, and you and I, uh, that's our tribe. We were both raised in that. It would change everything. I'm amazed at how we argue more about what people are trying to do uh, to fix racial issues than we do being known for fixing racial issues. Right now, everyone's arguing about CRT. It's just, to me, I don't know everything about CRT. There's some things about it I like. There's some things about it I dislike. There's some things about it I just don't know. But I don't right. know of any Southern Baptist churches that are having challenges with CRT. I've known of no business meetings where people have had to say, we've got to address this issue. But yet we see Southern Baptist pastors that are rabid yes. about CRT. I wish they were more rabid about we've got a racial issue and CRT, we may disagree with it, but here's what we're doing. And I wish we would be known for what we're doing more than how we're throwing stones at other people for what they're trying to do. So I think we can debate ideas, but as a follower of Jesus, it's more important that I love and I go out of my way to love somebody than to trash that other person for trying to get justice. And I think it's tragic when me as the Christian majority in America, who's a white evangelical, when you need help, we ought to be out front but instead, we're telling you what you can say, what you can't say, how you have to deal with it, how you can't deal with it. I think somehow or another we have, it's a way of saying, if I just argue with what they're trying to do, then I don't have to do anything. Well, Bob, you, your first question, how did we get here? I think in part we got here by preaching and, and not demonstrating a kingdom-focused center faith. Much of our preaching, much of our Christianity lacked a teaching and practice of the kingdom of God as a central component of our faith. And when you leave the kingdom of God out of your preaching, your theology, your practice, you can even justify uh, separation, segregation, Racism, and that happened on both sides. Black justification for it, white justification for it. And um, I think what will change it, I, I, I held a meeting once and we were talking about dealing with some community issues, some race issues. And I'll admit, Bob, I was on the side and actually hosting the, and hosting the meeting, leading the meeting that suggested maybe we needed only black pastors to address this issue and meet on this issue because we didn't want to have meetings where we have debate whether or not this is good or not good or whether or not this is political. We, we just, to, to not run the risk of our, our objectives getting lost in racial disputes, uh, I was really advocating the majority of the guys in the room were saying, let's, let's make this an all-black 
gathering and meeting. And, and, and I felt at the time no sense of conviction about that until one of the pastors in the room, and we'd all studied the kingdom by that time. We'd been to a mountain retreat with Jack Taylor for four days just to study the kingdom of God. <laughs> that's, a good, that's, a, that's a good person to learn it from. Yeah, but one of the pastors, Pastor Esther Duras, I talked with him today, he listened to that debate whether or not to invite blacks to be involved, I mean, white pastors to be involved. He says, well, it's okay if you leave them out, but you have to take kingdom out of the name. We're going to call this some kind of kingdom pastors fellowship or something. Uh, with one of the, one of our tenants, though, that the one came with the wrong mindset and wanted to be argumentative or uh, didn't view things how we viewed it. We just thought we'd exclude it, not even run the risk of having that happen. But he says, you have to take kingdom off of it. I went, wow. And we reversed our course and decided, right, it, it, this cannot be a kingdom movement and a kingdom pastor fellowship if you intentionally, volitionally leave a part of the kingdom out. Yeah. And I think that we got here because we had a, a cultural faith that allowed us to do that because we didn't understand a focus on the kingdom of God. East Stanley Jones, you may recognize that name. Sure. He was a Methodist. He wrote a book on God's unshakable kingdom, I think it was called. Yeah. But I read that book many years ago, uh, recommended by Jack Taylor. But East Stanley Jones says in that book that had the church properly understood and practiced kingdom of God, we'd have never, we'd have never gotten here. Would have been the separation, the segregation, uh, churches segregated, the, the prejudice, the, none of that could have happened with the biblical, the strong biblical discipleship orientation and and practice implementation of the kingdom of God as taught in scripture. That's, so if that's the problem, that's also the solution. So when we look at, at what's going on right now, uh, what would you say to a white pastor? What would you say, hey, I want to deal with racial issues in my church and some of my members watch only Fox News, so they're all fired up over this, and I want to talk about it, but it's going to be hard. What would you say to that pastor, Dwight? I would say to that pastor, let's study and perhaps study again, if we already have. What did Jesus teach about the kingdom of God? I would even say, let's Look at the makeup of Christ's followers. There's age diversity among that group. They were they were really young younger men. Uh, Peter may have been the only one over twenty because he was married and he and only somebody who had to pay taxes. Uh, the temple tax was Jews over twenty, and Jesus and Peter had to pay the taxes. Jesus told them to go fishing and the tax money would be in the fish mouth. He says, catch the, the fish for you and me. The other disciples were excluded from having to pay that tax because they were probably under age. And one is called uh, a, a little person, uh, which means he was probably not only maybe smaller stature, but younger in, in age. But Labaius, one disciple had three names. I think Judas, not his cater, his Thaddeus. Uh, and Labaius, which one scholar indicates he may have been a, uh, a native of Libya, uh, Thomas C. Oden, a white scholar who went to heaven a few years ago, 
he wrote a book, How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind, and another book about uh, Libya Christianity, and a third book um, that's a, a, entitled, uh, what is Odin's third book? Africa, How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind, Libyan uh, Christianity. I'm drawing a blank on the name of his uh, third book, but all three of those books show the tremendous African presence among the early church, the New Testament church, even among the disciples. So let's let's study the Bible. What would I say to them? Uh, let's study everything about what Jesus said, whosoever will let him come. That was the direct opposite of what you were told about they want to go to their own churches. That That is not what Jesus said. So you, they taught you a cultural Christianity rather than a biblical Christianity when they said to you, whosoever will, let him come. And um, so I would say to you, Bob, a, and I don't sound like a broken record, but I just studied the kingdom. The first Gentile church, Acts 13, the very first church, Luke goes out of his way to tell us that Africans, Asians and Europeans were part of the leadership of that church. And so, yeah, let's practice what God says about it. So, Dwight, I want to disagree with you. Will you let me disagree Okay, with that's you? fine. I think we've preached about racism and we've preached the gospel and we've said, you know, the gospel teaches there, you know, it's Jesus was savior of the world, all races, all people. It's no longer just the Jews, one tribe, how many sermons on racism in the gospel have been preached? Probably not as many sermons on the kingdom, but I think what most white preachers think is if they're preaching against it, then that's practicing racial reconciliation. It's not working. No, I mean, Matt Chandler, Matt Chandler's preached against it. There's nobody better than Matt Chandler in my book. I think the key to this is not preaching. I think we've preached enough. I think we have to practice and model and act. It's not what we believe mentally. It's what we practice relationally uh, that, that's going to change this. I'm just convinced of that. A, a few years ago, God spoke to my heart about this, and we intentionally desegregated our church. It was very hard, but we did it with our elders. We did it with our staff. We did it with our executive staff, and we lost people. I mean, we paid a price for it. And I'm not saying every church needs to go out and desegregate like what Bob Roberts did. I am saying we had better build relationships with people of different races and, and mindsets I, I think we're so isolated. It's like our relationships are very tribal and very narrow, and we are so busy. We just want to hang out with people that we're comfortable with. And when you hang out with people that are different, you're going to get a little uncomfortable. But you're also going to gain things that you wouldn't gain any other way. So I think when I hear, and I've heard a lot of preachers say this, we just need to preach the gospel. The gospel is the answer. You can stand up and talk to your blue in the face. We need to live the gospel. And that's what's not being done. Yeah, I don't think we disagree. I, I said, let's preach the kingdom and practice it. You, you're dealing with the practicing aspect of it. But I think the practice will go a lot better 
if we first start with the theology of it, which was the pattern of a lot of Paul's uh, epistles, if people are convinced that something is biblical and right, they have a conviction about that. Even if their culture and nature goes against the practice, the scripture and the Holy Spirit has convicted and converted them toward this is the right thing to do. And therefore, a vast majority of them will move in that direction or know they are grieving the Holy Spirit if they don't. Like an, an interracial couple, they don't have to pray about and ask God for a miracle to have an interracial child if they healthy and all is well. <laughs> it's just, just a natural outgrowth of their love for each other. And that's what you want to That's I, I, I may be wrong, but I've longed to see what if all of America, churches that are similar in uh, Bible-believing theology, Orthodox theology, I, I give up 20, 25, 50 members you give up 25, 50 members. If we could convince them to go do it, and that you got a, a church of 50 folk, maybe about 25 black, 25 white, uh, leadership is interracial. Uh, maybe they have a pastor, an associate pastor, so uh, interracial. Five years later, if, if, if they don't divide over racial issues, that church should grow, organically grow uh, interracial because that's its DNA. Yeah. It, 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 it can't, can't help but do that. Yeah, and, I agree. Uh, that's what Derwin Gray, Derwin has done a phenomenal job yeah. of that. I'm so proud of him. I mean, he's just, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm a passionate believer in that, and I love that. Dwight, we thought if we got our theology right in the SBC, uh, we'd grow – uh, we would be more uh, like the kingdom that Christ has called us to be. Yes. Yet I would say in the last 20 years, we're, we've actually reversed. You know, it's like we were moving forward. We were more open to African-American leader, African-American leadership uh, probably 30 years ago. It's like we've closed that down some. Uh, we invite more African-American preachers to preach, perhaps, and maybe not. If you go back and look at some of the programs, I'm not sure. The whole issue of women preaching, I grew up with Bertha Smith preaching in our church. We had a woman's day where some woman would would uh, would speak. I mean, absolutely. And it's like all of a sudden, you know, oh, woman speaking in your church. And, and I don't get what's going on to us. There's this rigidity, this old fundamentalism. Uh, and it's been given space to play out in our convention. Uh, and, and there's a there's a rigidity, a harshness, a mean-spiritedness about it, uh, just just hatefulness. W what do you think? I mean, we're the same age. You've you were around, I was around when Adrian Rogers and Jimmy Draper and people like that uh, challenged us to be true to the scriptures and and so we did. But it's as if we're going back in some old school fundamentalism. What do you make of it? Yes. Uh, Bob, I thought about uh, in the 60s and 70s, uh, I was in a Mount Calvary Baptist church with my father, Pastor St. Paul Baptist Church. They were both National Baptist churches, but we had a wonderful cooperative working relationship with Southern Baptist churches. There's a guy named Dr. Robert Ferguson who worked for the state convention of the Southern Baptist, it was his job. He's director of national Baptist relations. 
it was his job to build a rapport between the the Arkansas Baptists who were black and National Baptists with the Arkansas Baptists who were white and Southern Baptists. They have joint meetings, joint worship services. Uh, we we used a camp, Camp Parent in Arkansas at a different week than when the white kids used, but there was less, they made that available. You went to uh, Washington Baptist University, where what they give you scholarship money, Southwestern, uh, Baptist Student Union, they called it at the time, but Baptist Student Ministries are centers on campuses. They encourage your involvement. That was a wonderful working relationship between Black Baptists and White Baptists in the 60s and the 70s when the so-called moderates were in charge of the Southern Baptist Convention. It wasn't until late I was shocked to find out the racist history of the Southern Baptist Convention, probably 12 till about age 24, I'm observing all this wonderful harmony and fellowship between black and white Baptists. Uh, never a word about uh, the racist history of Southern Baptists. If, if nobody informed you about it, did you don't know. And when I found that out, I was shocked because I formed such a positive impression of Southern Baptists. My parents wanted me to go to Southern Baptist institutions. Uh, it's shocked, but, but by the time politically, uh, the group and uh, you and I were considered a part of that in many ways. The, in, the conservatives or the fundamentalists, whatever you want to call us, conservative resurgence come along uh, in the name of inerrancy and they won that battle, but yet they had less inclusion and intentionality about race. I know. They, isn't, isn't that crazy? So let's yeah, go back to the Bible and it's going to make us more racist. All over the convention, those aggressive, intentional programs where they ha had a person hired to build a relationship, the conservatives defunded those jobs, and they don't even exist anymore. And, and consequently, you find less physical engagement among uh, Southern Baptists in many of the meetings and gatherings. There's, 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 there's more racial tension today in 2020 than there was in 1960-70. Something is wrong with that. While we I agree with that. We somehow stop emphasizing and practicing this love across racial lines. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. And it's hard for me to understand. That, that's why I keep going back to preaching the Bible cannot be enough. It's, it's what we do. I've always been impressed. Acts 6, Dwight, uh, the way we got the first six deacons, uh, you know the story. Uh, the Hellenistic Jews were complaining because the Hebrew, uh, widow, the Hellenistic uh, yes, widows yes. that were Jews were, were uh, complaining because they weren't getting their fair share of food and the Hebrew uh, Jewish widows were getting much more. And so it was so much conflict. The apostles had to stop what they were doing. And so they met about it and they appointed these deacons. And what blows me away is all seven of them had Hellenistic names. Absolutely. Which the implication is they were all Greek. They, they said, look, this can't ever be wondered about again. So what did they do? It, it would be like saying to the Southern Baptist Convention, it's true. We have not treated African-Americans right. So for the next year, every position in the Southern Baptist Convention is going to be filled by an African-American. That's how radical that was. I agree and I look, with you. And, and I look at where we are right now, and um, 
I, I don't know. I just, my, my heart grieves. They want to make fun of people who can, who use the term woke, have conferences on that. They want to get upset about CRT. Tell me for God's sakes, what are you doing to heal the divide? And that's, right. that's what I want to do, Dwight. And I know that's what you want to do. Let me, let me ask you this, Dwight. What are you, when you look at the church, it's definitely uh, got some challenges. I'm sad because in some ways I felt like the younger generation coming along uh, would move a lot quicker than, than maybe uh, older generation that I'm a part of. But yet I see some of them also drinking at the same uh, water trough, and that concerns me. Uh, but I do see some signs with uh, some of the younger pastors that acknowledge this, that are pushing back on it. Uh, Vance Pittman is one example yes. that yes. I look at. Brian Bloy is another example that I look at. J.D. Greer, another example. So, I mean, you, you can list a lot of these guys. Do you see signs of hope? I'm like the man whose son was a demon-possessed uh, and when Jesus told the disciples uh, about uh, they should have been able to pray for the healing and deliverance, and he's, Jesus said this kind comes only by fasting and prayer, And uh, the, but the man's father, when Jesus was asking him about would his son be made holy, he said, Lord, I believe, but help thou my unbelief. So how do I feel <laughs> about the future? I believe. But help thou my unbelief, because if history is an indication of the future, uh, yeah. although that exceptions by and large, there's nothing historically that says that this is going to really work for the long term. That oneness of the early church and the walls broken down between the Jews and Gentiles, we have not seen that in a significant way. Uh, especially systemically in the body of Christ in America. Now, that, that's not to mean it can't happen and it won't happen. And who knows, Bob, if you're not inside the team together, uh, it might take old guys like you and myself to yeah. uh, try to bridge that gap or at least leave a model or a legacy. And in many ways, you're you're already on that road with your local net and uh, the churches that you, you're planted. But uh, interracial churches ought not to be the exception to the rule. They ought to be the rule. And all the time we find churches that are thoroughly one race should be where a community, if a community is all Korean or all uh, Haitian or all Anglo, I, I see nothing wrong with a local church looking like sure. they're a community. Right. But in most cases, our communities are no longer segregated. That you see remnants of that, but that generally is not the case, particularly in suburban communities and most urban communities. Why can't our churches look exactly like our community? I won't tell you something, Dwight. I have uh, loved you for 35 years or more, and you mean the world to me. And and I I know Dwight uh, being African American. Uh, is not easy. Being an African-American Southern Baptist pastor cannot be easy. And I do, as a white evangelical Southern Baptist pastor, ask you to forgive us. Uh, 
we're wrong. And, and I'm not afraid to say it. And I'm not afraid to ask you to forgive us and just tell you that you mean the world to me. And uh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just ready to uh, move in a new direction. I'll say this, Dwight. I fear that white evangelicals, you said it earlier when you mentioned Christian, Christian nationalism. I don't think we realize as Southern Baptists how deep that is inside of us. I think, Dwight, you know my heart for the world. I wanted to be a missionary. That's where yes. I went to school, got a doctor's degree to do that. I think most of uh, the motives and what I learned was good. But I also think to a large degree, without me, just like when I was a little boy, I didn't understand the racism that was present. When I was a seminary student, I did not see the Christian nationalism that was in our missions. So that when we went around the world to talk about the gospel, we didn't just take the gospel. We took American Christian church culture. And it has really created havoc around the world today. And the places where the church is growing the most is where the truths of the scripture are adhered to, but the boundaries of loving people with the gospel are wide open. And uh, I don't know, I'm praying not just for a revival, but an opening of the eyes of all those of us that are white, evangelical, uh, Baptist, whatever we might be in denominationally, that we will see the world through the eyes of Jesus, loving all people. Uh, and see, here's the other thing, Dwight. We're no different than, you know, somebody, you know, we you know, say we're different from other religions, but if we can get somebody just to pray the prayer, we say they're in. But we don't change the culture. We don't see a difference made in the community. And when you study the early church and where the gospel is exploding around the world, my word, everything is changing. And people are taking note of it. And, and I, I think that's what we've got to get back to. I think we do. Well, you know, sometimes you hear uh, certain churches may argue, man, we're taking a city. We got a vision to take the city. And... What you see in, I think, Acts 5, I don't know, maybe about verse 20, when the, um, the early disciples were brought before this Sanhedrin, they were, they were accused of filling up all Jerusalem with the doctrine of Christ. Now, when the city hall says you're taking a city, all Jerusalem, that's talking about Jesus. Yeah. That, to me, is really a sign that your church, of the, of the church not being just one local Congregation, but all the house churches throughout Jerusalem had captured the attention of the city with the name Jesus. In Acts 17, 7, uh, it was also said that these 12 have turned the world upside down. And that message was, there is another king. Listen to that message. It was a kingdom message. Christ the king and his kingdom said they literally turned the world upside down. The average baseball game, golf uh, game, soccer uh, game, ballet tournament. The, the world sees more interracial inter activity and inclusion than they see at the church. So that sort of discredits us out the gate. But uh, I love each other, Bob. It's genuine. I think it's 
not only based on uh, scripture and our belief in the kingdom, before we understood the kingdom as we do now, we had a genuine love. I think we were both poor seminary students, both came from uh, <laughs> Baptist preachers who were uh, uh, then pastor the largest church that had worldwide fame, but they loved God. They loved us, yeah. taught us certain things. Both of our wives were school teachers. And um, even I think uh, John Jeek has practiced the kingdom when he says, I've committed this house to Bob Roberts. And, and your color does not mean, and of course, I wouldn't have wanted him to boot you out, but maybe, <laughs> maybe a house was big enough we could have shared another room. But That's right. But, but what I tell people, if, if a white man loves Jesus, Bob, you mean so much to me, I would, I would not give a black man who don't know Jesus an advantage over you in any shape, form, or fashion <laughs> in the name of color because it's, it's a kingdom brotherhood here that supersedes yeah. the flesh. And, and, and when we can get to that point in the church, we can't get to that point in the nation because the church has not been able to overcome that barrier. But yeah. but it looks like that Acts 2 vision is, at some point, before Christ comes back, there will be a revival. Think about it. I know Baptists don't like to deal with Azusa. But at the end of the day, George Whitfield was uh, practiced slavery, believed in it, defended it. Jonathan Whitfield, people involved in the first uh, Great Awakening. That's right. um, and so... But William Seymour, a little cross-eyed black preacher who emphasized the Holy Spirit in, in Azusa, white people came from all over the world, all over America. And as a result, you got the Assembly of God, the Church of God in Christ, Oral Roberts University, CBN, TBN, a lot of Southern Baptist preachers preach on those stations. The whole Pentecostal worldwide expression traces its roots primarily Although there were some antecedents, it primarily traces back to Azusa in 1906 to 1909. That's right. And that has been more of a, that was truly, and it's, again, in this DNA, black and white Christians on their knees together, praying, God poured out his spirit, and look what happened. Matter of fact, the Assembly of God was a part of the Church, church of God in Christ, one people for about Six, eight years, I think, but in 1914 in Arkansas, here again, racism creeps into the church. Similar God right. breaks off from the Church of God in Christ, but because they were all birthed from the same root from about uh, 1907 to 1947 years, they were one denomination, one people. We got to get back to that and let God do it again. And I pray I don't go to heaven like Simeon and Anna didn't want to leave without seeing the Messiah in the temple. Amen. I don't want to leave this planet until I see what we're talking about is not just an idea, a thought, but the word will be made flesh and dwell among us. Churches that are not segregated, but integrated, not for integration's sake, but for kingdom's sake. You That's and I right. will see that in yeah. our lifetime become trending, moving toward normalcy rather than an aberration. And kingdom is all about transformation. You know, Absolutely. salvation is about a decision. Kingdom is about how we live it. And kingdom is about everybody. Here's the great horrible thing about racism. I mean, Israel was a nation that worshiped God of a particular race and, and, and 12 tribes and so forth. 
But when the kingdom came, it meant everybody is now on equal footing and par for the course. And, you know, I, I was, and I, I do think we have a kingdom issue here because the epitome as a Baptist was uh, the gospel of salvation. Just get them yeah. saved. I didn't understand the gospel of, king, of the kingdom. Had I, I would have known that salvation was not the epitome. Salvation was merely the first step towards seeing people love God and love one another. And the atonement, you know, people, when I was a teenager, argued was healing in the atonement. Let me tell you something. Everything was in the atonement. The restoration of all things, education, economics, health, it's all there. And, uh, you know, Dwight, sometimes I think maybe God's made me for old age. And I'm with you, like, praying about Simeon. And I, I just covenant to pray with you, Dwight, uh, that we live long. We've got to start eating less fried chicken. But let's true. pray that we live a long time, and let's see it come about. Amen? And let's work for it. And let's fight Amen. For Thank you for letting me be with you today, Bob. I look forward to future fellowship. Well, thank you so much to Pastor McKissick for joining us here on the Bold Love Podcast today. And thank you for joining us on this storytelling journey. If you enjoyed this episode and found our podcast helpful or intriguing, we would love for you to give us a review and subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast platform you are listening on. Doing this will help others find their way to these conversations. Doing this is actually helps listeners around the world connect with this message. So please drop us a review and it would be so helpful helpful if you can be a part of spreading that message of bridge building and peacemaking. For full show notes, links, and details of this episode or any, you can go to bobrobertsjr.com and find them there. We appreciate you so much joining us. And remember at the Bold Love Podcast, we want to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, learn how to better love your neighbor, and learn how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. Have a blessed day.